Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Listen, it isn't hard if you look around to find people who are willing to share their opinion on Hamilton. I found a website called the Urban Dictionary, which apparently you can go on there and just post your thoughts on any city. So on the page where you're asked to finish the sentence, Hamilton, Ontario is, here's what uh, I found people saying. One person said, Hamilton, Ontario is a mid-sized city of around 500,000 located in between Toronto and Niagara Falls. It is known as the forward cleat of the golden horseshoe, but the Achilles heel or the beep hole of Canada would be a more accurate nickname for Hamilton, Ontario. Another person said, Hamilton, Ontario has an inferiority complex next to his, its larger neighbor, Toronto. Uh, however, Hamiltonians know that by risking higher rates of cancer and deformed children and the awful eggy smell due to the steelworks, the rent and the quality of life is great. One person said, Hamilton, Ontario is a mass of genetic mutation and smog and marijuana smoke located south of Toronto. And this one's my favorite. This person said, Hamilton, Ontario is a polluted city with a corrupt mayor. There isn't really any good reason to come here unless you really like steel or smog. The downtown is full of crazies and people who go to Hillfield are rich snobs. Can you believe that? I wish Heather hadn't posted that actually. (laughs) What a lot of people don't realize is that there's a story behind Hamilton. There's like, there's actually a story that explains why things are the way that they are in the city today. You may not know this, or maybe you do, but for most of the 20th century, Hamilton was actually a success story. Like the city was booming and thriving. Hamilton's working class, most of them were employed in one of two companies, which you could probably name, Stelco and and DeFasco. And at one time or another, these two steel companies were supplying Canada with somewhere between a third to half of all the steel that was being used. It was going into cars and railroads and construction and pipes and hardware and stuff like that. During the World Wars, Hamilton's steel supplied the Allies with shells and, and artillery and weapons and stuff like that. And so, so Hamilton was super successful through this time, wealth and, and prosperity. In fact, Hamilton was doing so well that in the, in the 1930s, when a lot of cities were kind of knocked to their knees by the Great Depression, Hamilton was barely affected. Now, with all this prosperity, there were some people who took advantage. And so during those times, there was actually a lot of crime, uh, a, lot of, a lot of organized crime. Uh, there was corruption at City Hall and within the police force. There was smuggling and, and uh, prostitution and bribery. And, and interestingly, in parallel, all the while through this, Hamilton's churches were booming. The churches were full. And things changed. Somewhere around the middle of the 20th century with, and then later on with, with NAFTA, like free trade, and then with you know, globalization, it, around the 1980s and 1990s, it became really easy to find an imported car, to, buy, to get an imported car brought over, and you could pay for about half the price for that car that you could if it was made in Canada by Canadian labor and with Canadian steel. Because Canadian steel is more expensive, Canadian laborers insist on getting a fair wage, they insist on getting time off. They insist on getting health care and dental benefits and, and a pension. And if they don't get it, then the union tells them to go on strike. 
And as a result of that, over the 20th century, things declined quite a bit. In fact, Delco, just for example, went from about 25,000 employees at the plant over here in the 1970s to about 650 employees there today. So that's why you actually know, because of the decline, that's probably why you know these companies by a couple of different names. You don't, probably don't know them as Stelco or DeFasco. You know them as ArcelorMittal, DeFasco, and US Steel. And that's because in the early 2000s, these companies were on their knees, on the verge of disaster and bankruptcy, in bankruptcy, in fact, and uh, they, were they were bought out by a couple of American companies. Here's where it gets even worse. All of a sudden, they are saddled with all of the pensions from all of the workers who've worked there over the, over the decades and have now retired, and they realize, oh, shoot, we can't afford to pay all these pensions. And for a lot of people, it stops. Their pensions are cut off. Their pe pension benefits are cut off. From a whole bunch of these workers from decades and decades of faithful work at Stelco and DeFasco. Now think about how that affects your family, if that's you. When you extrapolate that across the city and how many people were working for Stelco and DeFasco over those years, think of what that does to the city. Not only do you have a mom and dad who've probably lost their job, but it's, it's your grandmother and your grandfather who have no pension. And they can't afford for, to, to pay for their prescriptions. They can't afford a dentist. They can't afford to live in a retirement home. Like if this is your family, you're in big trouble. This, you consider this a disaster. This is calamity. But even if it's not your family that's directly affected by it, someone that you know is, someone that you know and love has been devastated by the downturn in Hamilton. And so what, well, what comes next? Well, what comes next is there's widespread poverty. Something like 10,000 families in the city right now are on Ontario Works. 10,000 in a city of 500,000. 20,000 families are collecting disability, ODSP. Tons of children in this city are, are missing their developmental milestones. There's obesity and, and uh, homelessness and diabetes. And, and, and I realize these are all different categories. These all aren't kind of lumped together, but even things like addictions, like there's an opioid crisis in the city right now, crime and mental illness, and you can go on and on and on. And there's a direct connection between the downturn in Hamilton and the situation we find ourselves in today. And here's the thing, for everybody who looks at Hamilton and sees us as the ambitious city, which we are, but for everybody who sees Hamilton as the ambitious city, there are twice as many people for whom Hamilton is a broken promise. There are twice as many people who look at Hamilton and all, of these, all that they see is the broken promise. They see two or three generations of just disaster and calamity. Now, this morning, we're continuing in our series in the book of Amos. It's called No Justice, No Peace. Amos speaks to the city. In this study, what we're trying to do is see what God has to say to cities. And last week when you were together, I wasn't around, but I, Jordan, thank you so much for leading us through the, the first couple of chapters. That message is going to be online this week if you missed it. Uh, Jordan, thank you again for, for teaching us. You, you did a really, really great job, and I so appreciate it. But this morning we continue and we're looking at chapters three and four because when bad things happen in a city, Amos seems to know why. Amos knows why bad things happen in a city. When Israel went through its troubles and its disaster and its calamities, Amos had this to say. This is from chapter three, verse six. He says, when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble. 
when a disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? That's what it says. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Like it was the Lord's doing. God is the cause. He's the ultimate cause, okay? He's the ultimate why at the end of the chain. He's the, he's the cause of this. Amos does not say God allowed it. Amos does not say that God permitted it. He says God caused it. Now let that sit with you a minute. Let that sit with you a minute. Let that wash over you. Feel what you should feel when you hear that. All right? God caused the disaster in the city, Amos says. And and, and I want to ask, like, is that true? Is that what we're meant to believe? Well, elsewhere in Scripture, there are similar things that God has to say. He says in uh, Isaiah, I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I do that. I, the Lord, do all these things. In Lamentations, we read, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Again, let that sit with you. Like, in other words, God is behind this. In some ultimate sense, God is the cause. And we don't want to ignore that. We don't want to pass over that. It would be a mistake at best for us to dismiss God's involvement. It would be a mistake at best. It would be dishonest of me at worst. In Scripture, God has revealed himself as absolutely sovereign. He decides what should happen, and he makes sure that it does. Whether we're talking about a sparrow falling to the ground, or the decisions of a a pharaoh's hard heart, whether we're talking about in, in my own family, whether we're talking about cancer or miscarriage or childhood trauma, or if we're talking about in these verses, in the experience of Israel, prosperity and disaster and calamities and good things. And because of verses like this, a lot of people go to, go to the scripture and they draw a straight line from those sorts of passages to the situations we find ourselves in today. And they say, well, clearly it's the same thing. Like, clearly, that's why Hamilton is the way that it is. We have sinned. We have become corrupt. We've betrayed God. We've disobeyed. Obviously, God is punishing us. Obviously, God is angry with us. God's punishing Hamilton. Now, I don't know if you know people who believe that. I I certainly do. I know people who believe that. I know pastors who believe and teach that. When COVID started a couple of years ago, I recorded a video explaining a few reasons why I didn't believe that this was God's punishment. And uh, a pastor friend of mine, he, he wrote me sort of offline and he said, Mike, how do you know this is not ex- an expression of God's wrath intending to wake us from our sinful worship of creation and breaking of his laws? In the Old Testament, th- God does this all the time. Pestilence, famine, sword meant to lead God's people to repentance. How do you know that's not what this is, Mike? And so we, we need to be really clear about this. Today, we want to wrestle with this idea of God's involvement in disaster and calamity. We want to ask, is this what we're meant to believe? Is Hamilton, is our city under God's judgment? Are we being, is it being punished? And I'm going to tell you right off the top, my answer is no. My answer is no. And I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe that's, that's the correct answer. I, I do think this is going to stretch us a bit. 
Okay, this is going to be a bit of a different kind of a message, but I do think this is going to give us a theological foundation that I think is so important for followers of Jesus who live in a city and worship God in a city. Now, to get started, we need to talk about something called theodicy. All right, maybe I'm introducing a new term for you. How many people have heard the word theodicy before? Okay, just a handful of us. That's great. That's actually great. If that's a new word, that's the word that theologians use to de- for the problem of evil and suffering. Okay, theodicy asks, how is it that a good, almighty, loving God can allow people to suffer? Like, if he loves us, if he can stop evil, why doesn't he? If he can stop suffering, why doesn't he? And any answer that you find, anybody that you, whose books you read, their answer is going to boil down to really one of four possibilities. And one answer is this. God would if he could, but he can't. Here, either God didn't know that the thing was going to happen, he didn't know it, or he's not allowed to interfere. And there's a ton of people who believe this. God would stop these things if he could, he just can't. Another answer is that God would stop suffering, but he doesn't care to. This is the view that says, God actually enjoys seeing people suffer. When people do bad things and they experience the consequences of it, God is up there kind of, you know, rubbing his hands, twisting his mustache, and he enjoys seeing that. So God would, would stop suffering, but he doesn't care to. Another view is that God would stop suffering, but he doesn't need to. He's too busy. He's got bigger things to deal with. He's got a universe to, to, to run, and so he doesn't get involved. And the fourth view This is what I call, he will stop suffering and evil, but for now, this is the only way. This is the best way. And this happens to be my view. This is is a way that holds in tension two very important biblical truths. One is the fact that people make their own choices. They make free decisions, whether for good or for evil. And we are each responsible for the decisions that we make. And nothing happens in this universe without God's permission. Everything that happens, happens according to his plan and purpose, including disasters. God is never surprised. He is never overruled. No one can stop him from doing what he intends to do. And evil and suffering that we see, the disasters and calamities that we see, they happen because a world where people can suffer and be saved from it is ultimately better than one in which we never could have suffered. It's better than a world in which there was never any such thing as evil. Another way to say it might be to say that this is the best of all possible worlds. And there's more to say about this for sure, but that is a a, a brief uh, biblical sort of effort at theodicy. Now, even though we acknowledge that God is sovereign over disaster, God ultimately is the cause that doesn't mean God is punishing, punishing Hamilton. And we need to see some reasons why that's true. Okay? The first reason is that Hamilton isn't Israel. Hamilton isn't Israel. We need to compare the two. We need to see, first of all, that as, as Amos explains what's going on, we see why Israel's judgment was deserved. Amos tells them, uh, Amos tells them in chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I chosen of all the families of earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Okay? You mark that? Chapter 3, verse 10. God says, they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses 
what they have plundered and looted. Okay? So we're building a case for how Israel's judgment was deserved. He goes on at the beginning of chapter 4. God says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. And what God is saying in all of this is that Israel deserves judgment because of all the nations of the earth, they're the ones who knew God, okay? They're the ones who have a covenant with God. They're the ones who have the law. Others don't. And God says, they don't know how to do right. They're living off the, the, the wealth that they've stolen from these other nations, the loot and the plunder. He says, even the rich women, they laze around all day long and they gorge themselves with wine. Meanwhile, the poor are crushed and oppressed all around them. And so what Amos is saying here is that Israel's judgment is deserved, okay? They have disobeyed God. They have broken the covenant. And then in chapter 4, we see how God's judgment is delivered. How God's judgment is delivered. He says at the beginning of chapter 4, he says over and over, I did this and you didn't return to me. I did that and you didn't return to me. He deprived them of food and water, he says. He, he withheld rain. He wrecked their crops. He sent plagues. He killed their soldiers. And on and on and on. And God says, I did all of these things. And each time, you have not returned to me. I want to pause and show you something really interesting and important about God's judgment here, okay? God's purpose here isn't to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. He wants them to return to him. Do you see that? He says, what God is doing for Israel, it's not to punish, it's not to get rid of them, it's to restore them. It's not retributive justice, it's not punitive justice, it's restorative justice. They had been close, and now they're far apart, and God wants them to be close again. And we should ask, is that the situation in Hamilton? Well, let's, let's think about this a minute. In some ways, the situation we're in is the same. Good and evil are the same. That, that hasn't changed the definition of good and evil. God himself hasn't changed, but there is a big difference between us, which is that Hamilton has no covenant with God. And so whatever reason for all the troubles that are facing Hamilton, it cannot be so that would we, we would return to God because we never turned to him as a city in the first place. Are you with me on that? And so if we take a text like these things we read in Amos today, and if we draw like a straight line from Amos right in his context to our context, and we assume that what, he, what was true for them is what's true for us, that's a big mistake. It is a big mistake. Bad things happen when you make people accountable to keep expectations that God doesn't have of them. Amen? It is a big mistake to make people responsible to keep rules and laws and commands that God never asked them to keep. Israel is not Hamilton, okay? Israel is not Hamilton. If we can tell the difference, believe me, God can tell the difference, and he isn't punishing a city for failing to keep a covenant that we never made. So that's reason number one. It's because Hamilton isn't Israel. That's the first reason. The second reason we can be confident that God isn't punishing Hamilton is because of the kind of covenant that we do have with him. So let's compare the covenants. We're going to compare the covenants, okay? Years after Amos, 
another prophet was going to come along, uh, and this prophet, Jeremiah, was going to tell the world about a new way that God was going to relate to people. He says in Jeremiah 31, God says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So this is a new covenant that's coming, all right? In, the, in this covenant, God's law is going to be in minds, and it's going to be in hearts, and it's going to be for everyone, from the least to the greatest. It's, it is open to anyone. Ezekiel, the prophet, he says later on, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Again, in this covenant, there's a, a new heart. We obey God because we have a new heart, because God's own spirit lives in us. And belonging to God, being one of his people, it's not a matter of like nation or city. It's a matter of personal relationship, okay? It's a personal relationship. It's not by birth. It's not by circumcision. Jesus has changed all of that. And that's why in the New, we get to the New Testament and we read in Romans 2, Romans 2, the Apostle Paul says, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persisting in, good, in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. To those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. That means God doesn't punish Hamilton, nor at the same time, nor does he have like some protective spell around Hamilton that he doesn't have around Toronto or Guelph or Ottawa or, or any other city that you could think of. In this covenant that we have with God, in this covenant, God's justice and his mercy are for people, not for cities. That's why we can know that whatever the reasons are for the troubles that, that we experience here in Hamilton, whatever the reasons are, it isn't punishment. It's not punishment. So that's the second reason. And there's one more reason uh, we need to see. And this reason has to do with God's promises. It has to do with God's promises. Now, is God involved in this? Is God responsible in an ultimate way? Yes. Is God punishing Hamilton? No. But the troubles facing the city still mean something. They still have meaning. And it's not a mystery, actually, what these things all mean. God has actually told us. He's made us some promises so that we can know the meaning of these things. And to really get at this, I think, let's go back to the cross for a minute. Let's get our bearing and take a stand at the cross for a second. Because if not for the cross, we would look at the troubles in our city and we would say like, oh man, God is doing to us exactly what he did to Israel and Damascus and Tyre and Sodom and Gomorrah and on and on and on. We are condemned just like they are. Except at the cross, Jesus stood in our place. Jesus took that judgment. God has no judgment left to spend on you because he spent it all on Christ on the cross. And he's promised that that's true. And that's why 
That's why the apostle says in Romans 8, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. There's no condemnation left for you who are in Christ Jesus. Now, is that an overstatement? Is that, is that true? Of course it's true. God, God means that. He means that. And he, said, he means it when he says a few verses later at the end of Romans 8, he says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And he goes on and he says, I'm convinced that nothing, nothing, neither death nor life, angels or demons, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, let's just check that for a second. When Paul says all things work for good, does that actually include all things? Like, is there anything going on in Hamilton right now? Is there any, any problem that you could think of in Hamilton that's not included in that all things? No. He means all things. All things work together for our good. None of it, none of it is able to separate us from his love. Now listen, I am not saying that these things aren't serious. I am, I'm not saying that there aren't people out there who are doing some seriously evil things who deserve to be judged by God. There are. And it may be that one of the reasons for these troubles may be because God wants to get some of these people to wake up to his mercy. It isn't hard for me to imagine that someone who rejects Christ and who harms people and exploits people is being warned by God, by the things that we see around us, and, and, is, and God is calling them to wake up. That might be true. Remember, God has no promise that covers someone who rejects him. He has no covenant with someone who rejects him. He has no promise to cover a person who does evil and rejects him with their life. But I can imagine a thousand other reasons why these things might be happening. I can imagine a thousand reasons these things might be happening. And I can imagine a different situation for a thousand different people, a thousand different situations. I can imagine a thousand more ways these things can work together for good for those who love God. Can't you imagine what some of those ways might be? Can't you imagine some of the ways these things might work, might work together for our good? How about to teach us patience and mercy, to teach us to conquer our fear and to overcome our prejudices and to help us to love people who aren't like us, to help us to get rid of our idols, to make us like Jesus and a thousand other good reasons. But one reason that it is not is to punish us. It is not to punish us. Not if Christ has done what he says he's done. He's promised. We don't know all the reasons why things are the way that they are. We may never know on, on this side of eternity or on the next. That's for God to understand. The reasons are his to understand. That is his place. Our place, my place, my place is not to presume that of all the possible reasons why these things might be happening, that of all people in the world, I know the reason why all these things are happening. My place is to trust God and to love him and to let God run the universe. That's my place. My place is to get out of the way, trust God, to love my neighbor as I love myself. That's my place. And that's your place as well. That's your place as well. And, and 
And you know, someday, someday it will be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. It will be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. That's what we pray for. And that's what we strive for. That's why we do this week in and week out. It, someday it will be, even if it is not right now. And you know, if you can trust him with that, if you can leave that to him, if you believe that Jesus has got this, he actually invites you to do something in response. He actually invites you to come forward and to sort of present yourself and in a spiritual sense, receive him as he receives you. We're going to transition right into the Lord's Supper this morning. And the reason we're doing it this way is that you don't need to have everything figured out in order to belong to Jesus. It is okay for you to have questions and, and not understand how God sovereignly works in all of these things. That's okay. But if you do believe that through Christ, God is working all things together for your good, if you do believe that in your life there is now no condemnation for you, you should come forward. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.